So, <laughs> so yeah, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad to, to be here. Um, actually, it's thanks to a shift in the schedule, um, Pastor Ray has given me the opportunity to, to preach and bring the word tonight. And I hope you guys enjoyed your, your boba and board game night a few weeks ago. <laughs> and I'm not sure if you guys know, but that night wasn't planned in the original schedule. It just so happened that... I think both the pastors were out, and so, um, but it was cool, you know, it provided an opportunity for people to, um, to just spend some quality time together um, for joint Airbnb, <laughs> I love that, that's genius, um, but so in God's providence, that pushed tonight's topic to this week, which is the church ordinances, um, and it's so fitting because this Sunday, um, if you guys know, is Communion Sunday. So I, I feel like God is taking tonight's text and, and he's going to sear it in our minds with an illustration on Sunday as we partake in Communion. So that's awesome. That's, that's the, the wisdom and um, knowledge of God. So... Yeah, so far this series, uh, yeah, this has been an awesome series. We're going through, um, uh, what is it called again? The, uh, the Articles of Faith, that's right. So our church, church's Articles of Faith. And, and I hope you guys were encouraged um, with Pastor Roger's uh, sermon last week on the church. Essentially bringing us to the essential core of why we exist as a church, Right? Um, our existence as a church is is not uh, contingent upon our programs, our ministries, or the things that we do, but it is Christ who is the divine foundation and the divine cornerstone of his church. Right? When he says to Peter, I say to you, you are Petros, Peter, you know, a stone. And on this rock, Petra, this massive foundational bedrock formation on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, of death will not prevail against it, right? That's, that's awesome. Death and Hades, the grave has no hold on Christ and it doesn't have a hold on the bride of Christ. So, so you are redeemed you exist to make much of the cornerstone. And you exist to make much of him in the manner which he has commissioned us to make much of him. That is, to make disciples, right? Baptizing them and teaching them and raising them up. And that is the vision of Christ for his church. It's discipleship. To make many sons and daughters, many brothers and sisters, um, raise up many disciples. And that is his vision for the universal church, but also this local body of believers, SFBC. And that is the vision of this ministry, join us, right? And that's why we regularly gather together to be nourished by God's word week by week. And and kudos to you guys who have made it out tonight, despite the inclement weather. So, so, I praise God that you guys are here, safe and sound. 
And now this vision of Christ for his church is, is why we have flock groups, right? It's to help one another to impress Christ upon one another that we may make much of the cornerstone, the Petra in our lives together. So thank you, Pastor Roger, for your message last week. Um, I mean, what a way to lay a foundation for tonight, right? A foundation with a capital F. So tonight we're looking at the ordinances of the church. Um, And I'd just like to define what we mean by ordinance. So the ordinances are outward events that Christ has appointed to be ministered in his church, which manifest the gospel. So that's, that's, I guess, our working definition. The ordinances are outward events that Christ has appointed to be administered in his church, which manifests the gospel. And the word ordinance is from Latin, meaning mean ordered or ordained. So these are instructions that Jesus authoritatively ordered for us to practice. And we see in Scripture that there are two ordinances. Not seven, not five, but we believe there are two. And they are baptism and communion. I'll just briefly read what is said in our Articles of Faith. Baptism is a portrait of our association with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Matthew 28, 19, Romans 6, 3 through 5. And we believe that the Lord's Supper, communion, is the, commemor- the commemoration of his death until he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 32. Now, when Pastor Ray told me that this was the signed topic for this week, I, I was torn because... There's so much. You want, you want one message to cover both baptism and communion. <laughs> right? Um, so, so I was really torn. I was deciding how, how I was going to put this together. I figured it's, it would be better to cover one of them well, okay, as opposed to kind of, you know, just do a superficial explanation of each. I mean, I mean, how much can I cram into the 90 minutes that I have, right? <laughs> Just joking. I wish. Um, but in any case, so both of them, they hold uh, equal significance since they point to the same thing. But I figured because communion is more regularly occurring, we're going to go with communion tonight. Okay? <laughs> but... Uh, I'll just give a short overview of baptism. Um, reference verses Romans 6 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So baptism, a, a brief summary of baptism, it's, it's an outward symbol reflecting an inward reality, right? It's reflecting the inward reality of one who has come to Jesus Christ in faith 
dying to their former selves, being buried with Christ, and then being raised up with him to a new life, a new life with a new identity as a child of God in Christ and a new purpose for his life, to live for his king. So baptism is a visible picture of the gospel. Um, Now communion is also a visible representation of the gospel in his own right. Um, now, many of us might be familiar in, in terms of text, right? Many of us might be familiar with Paul's text in 1 Corinthians um, that's often read when we observe communion, right? For I received uh, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, right? You guys know that verse. Um, but tonight, instead of preaching from 1 Corinthians, I've chosen to go to the original event itself to look at the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22. Um, so if you're not there already, um, uh, yeah, turn to Luke chapter 22. I chose this because here Jesus gathers his disciples to himself. He's in the upper room, and he's gathered them here to celebrate the Passover one last time. Because what's going to happen the next day? They're celebrating the Passover on Thursday night while the cross looms just beyond the next day on Friday. So with that in view, let's read uh, let's read our passage. I, w- I want to read from verse 1. 1 to, one to 20. <clears throat> now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might want to might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. Verse 4. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, 
Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God, we thank you for the opportunity, this, this privilege that we have to come before your word and to be students. God, as you invite us into that upper room, at such a pivotal and monumental time in the history of mankind. God, I pray that you be our teacher tonight. Pray that you would give us illumination that we may see these eternal truths that you are laying bare before us, God. That we might discern them, comprehend them, Rejoice in them and glory in them, God. So be with us now. We need your help, God. Amen. So tonight we are going to look at two milestones of the Last Supper. Two milestones of the Last Supper. If you want an outline, uh, these two milestones are, first, the culmination of the Passover, and second, the commencement of the new covenant. The culmination of the Passover and the commencement of the new covenant. Oh, that's Pastor Roger here. Do you mind if I take one of these waters? <laughs> Is it cool? Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, I rushed out, rushed out here. God, these are nice and cold. <laughs> So the culmination of the Passover and the commencement of the new covenant. So we're going to look at first the culmination of the Passover. Verse 14. <clears throat> when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now first, just some background leading up to Luke 22 in general. So up until then... Jesus has been saying, my time has not yet come. Okay, so back in John chapter 7, when his brothers wanted him to go from Galilee down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, Jesus replies, John 7, 8, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet come. Later, when he eventually goes down, and when the crowds are seeking to seize him and they try to kill him because he's proclaiming to have come from God, it says, no, no man was able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Right? So, his time had not yet come. The Son of Man lays down his life and he takes it up again at his own initiative. There's no 
chief priests or temple guards or, or, or Roman governors who will decide the fate of the Son of Man. Now, when we're looking at our, our chapter here, we begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching, right? And the chief priests and the scribes, they're, they're trying to find a way to put him to death because they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the crowds. So they're trying to find some way where they can get Jesus in private, arrest him, tuck him away somewhere, hide him, maybe after the Passover is over, after the Passover is over, after the people are dispersed, and then they can execute him quietly, right? And so conveniently, Satan enters into Judas and he goes to speak with the chief priest to find a good opportunity to betray him apart from the crowd, right? And so Jesus discreetly makes preparation for the Passover to be celebrated with his disciples in this undisclosed location with an undisclosed person. Right, he sent Jesus. Uh, he sent Peter and John away. Verse eight: Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They say, "Where do you want us to prepare it?" He said, "When you enter the city, you'll meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. So follow him into the house that he enters, and then you'll say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, 'Where's the Where's the room where we're to celebrate Passover?' So it's very nondescript. It's it's very uh, Inconspicuous. Or right, just go into the city, you'll find this man carrying, carrying water, which was actually uncommon for men to do. Right? So find this, this guy, he's going to stick out like a sore thumb, and follow him to where he's going, and then speak to the owner of the house where he leads you to, and he'll, he'll know what to do. The, the teacher, right? The teacher says to you, Where is the room? And so that, that's, that's how that came to be, right? So now, verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, Jesus isn't going to let Judas and the chief priests have their way. He's not going to let the temple guards, the Roman governors and whatnot decide his fate. Right, John 10, 17, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again and so his time has not yet come but now leading up to the last supper the climactic appointment that the Godhead had set in eternity past had finally arrived because here verse 14 for the hour had come this is both literally and I would say figuratively at the same time is literally the hour had come because it is the hour for Passover. He's saying the sun has gone down. So at twilight, when the sun goes down, that's the official beginning of Passover. 
on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And figuratively, Jesus is saying that my hour has now come. Because in the parallel uh, passage in John, John 13, 1, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loves them to the end. Verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, verse 16, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Like, if, if you can just, if you can feel the weight of this moment, if you were able to, to, to carry this moment and just feel the weight of it, it is titanic. It is colossal. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus knows his role that he was to play in God's redemptive plan for mankind. Because the fulfillment of the Passover was at hand. The suffering and the slaughter of the true Passover lamb was at hand. Jesus told his disciples just earlier, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He was saying, it was for this hour that I have come. It is for this hour that I have come. What is transpiring here? At this table, what is transpiring here reaches far back into the pages of the law and the prophets. The faint whispers through the ancient bygone texts of those old scrolls. Those faint, faint whispers are about to be shouted and become a mighty shout because the culminating hinge point of all history was at hand. Let's read on, verse 17. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's taking this cup and he's giving thanks. 
okay, at the start of this meal. Now, Passover is traditionally celebrated with four cups. And the meal begins with this first cup, which is the cup of thanksgiving. And the father or the head of the household would take the cup and he'd offer thanks to God. And then he'd give an explanation of the significance of the Passover memorial meal. Right? So he'd explain you know, Israel, Israel's plight in Egypt. Um, I guess we can explain it. We can explain it here. So in God's providence, Joseph is sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt. Right? Sold as a slave, goes down to Egypt. Then there's famine in the land. So God brings Israel, Jacob, and all his sons eventually down to Egypt. They find favor in Pharaoh's eyes because of Joseph. And then they live in the land of Goshen. And so for four, 400 years, they're protected in the land of Goshen where they can just live and multiply. But then what, what happened? Right? The Egyptians began to see that the, the Hebrews were too numerous and too powerful for them. Right? And then the Hebrews were enslaved. So they were enslaved in bondage, the bitterness of slavery. And under the heel of Pharaoh's cruelty, um, right? And then he would take, take, take all, the, all the males and, and throw them into the Nile. The bitterness that the people of God suffered in Egypt was, it was pointing to something. It was pointing, it was pointing to something. It was pointing to something that, uh, the slavery that we, that we endure under the bondage of sin, right? So, but I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So Israel's enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then God raises up Moses to go before Pharaoh. Right, and God afflicts Egypt with His wonders, with these plagues, these ten plagues, and then comes the last plague, right? The last plague, the death of the firstborn. So God was going to come as the destroyer to take the life of every firstborn in the land of Egypt, of both man and beast. So He would. Kill God Himself would come and kill every single firstborn in the land, whether or not it was a Hebrew, right? Of both man and beast, He would kill every firstborn, unless what? Unless the blood of a lamb is spread on the posts and on the lintel of the doorway, right? Exodus twelve twelve. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So when God saw the blood... Right? He would pass over the house, and that house would be spared. Philip Ryken says, the doorposts put blood between God and the sinner. 
the doorposts put blood between God and the sinner. I would add, these bloody doorposts put propitiation between God and the sinner. Because God's wrath was appeased because of a substitutionary death that had occurred. More about the Passover. So, Yahweh also instructs Israel with how to observe the Passover. Okay? And he commands them to keep it as a perpetual memorial for all generations. So, in Exodus 12, they, we see that on the 10th day of the month, the people are to each take a lamb for themselves, right? A lamb for each household. Verse 5 Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And on the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. All right, so you see what's going on? So on the 10th day of the month, so the first day of Passover, you, you are to keep this little lamb in your household for four days. Okay, this this one-year-old little uh, unblemished lamb, right? It, it's, it becomes a part of the family, right? This, this little, it's like a little puppy. <laughs> I mean, you, you become attached to this little little guest in your home. Um, this you know this cute little lamb. You keep it in your home for four days, and then at twilight on the fourth day. You brought this little lamb out of the house, and along with all the congregation of Israel, you would place your hand upon it, and you would slice its throat. And then you spread the blood on the doorway, on the doorposts and the lintel. So Passover spoke a very clear, very visible message. Sinners are delivered from destruction by the death of an innocent substitute. The message of Passover is this. Sinners are delivered from destruction by the death of an innocent substitute. And later, after Yahweh has delivered his people from Egypt at the Passover, he delivers them through the Red Sea, and he leads them through the wilderness towards the promised land, right? And he's leading them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is dwelling with his people, This is signified by the tabernacle of God that resides in the midst of the camp of Israel. God is living with his people. And Leviticus is all about how an unholy people can live with a a holy God. It's about how an unholy people can live beside a holy God. And all those intricate sacrifices, all those 
the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering, this continual slashing and blood spilling of guiltless animals exposed the horrific severity of man's sin. And what it means to live before a holy God. The constantly bloody scene at the tabernacle demonstrated also the costly price of atonement. And on the day of atonement, this is symbolized where you would place your hands on the head of the goat or the sacrifice that's about to be made, symbolically representing the transfer of the sins of the individual onto this goat before it is slain before God and offered on the altar. So the message of the Passover, the message of all the tabernacle and all the temple sacrificial system, it was the same message. Sinners are delivered from judgment by the death of an innocent substitute. So it persisted generation after generation after generation. Animals slain, millions upon millions. But God's wrath for man's sins, his wrath was never satisfied. Because true atonement for man's sins were not accomplished by these lambs and these bulls and these goats. Right? We find in Hebrews 10.4, for, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So these sacrifices became placeholders. Placeholders. These sacrifices stayed the hand of God's vengeance. But the people's sins were not yet dealt with. MacArthur writes, No one was ever delivered from divine judgment by the death of an animal. The repeated sacrifice of animals was a continual symbol of the fact that God does deliver by the death of a substitute. Animals were used as they are a good picture to illustrate innocence as they do not have a moral personhood or a conscience. Because they do not have the ability to sin nor be holy, they can only portray holiness, and they cannot embody it. Therefore, no animal was ever satisfactory to God. And so that's why the sacrifices went on and on by the millions over the ages. And so the people waited for a sacrifice that would be satisfactory to God, to which all those unsatisfactory sacrifices pointed. So this would be the case for centuries. Sacrifice upon sacrifice. All these, this, this heaping pile of animal, this sacri- the bones that were taken outside of the camp. A constant reminder of the horror of sin and the need for atonement. Millions and millions upon animals slain 
until the day when God provides his own final Passover lamb. When God brings his lamb, the lamb that did not just dwell with him for four days, but dwelled with him from eternity past in perfect fellowship and dwelled with him in perfect joy. And then he takes his precious lamb, eternally begotten lamb, and he holds him outside the door and he slices his throat. And he places the blood of his lamb upon the doorway between God and man. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8, 3. Jesus took upon flesh so that the Father would condemn sin in that flesh. The Lamb of God the eternal, pre-existing Lamb of God that breathed life into the universe, who sustains the universe. The Lamb of God, very God of very God, became a man so that the Father would have something to nail on the cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And it pleased God to crush him, putting him to grief. Isaiah 53. Came across this little poetic piece uh, that Johnny Erickson Tata wrote. Portraying Christ and the crucifixion. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is laying upon the cross, his arms stretched out and nails driven through his hands and feet. And he's lifted up and blood streams from his wounds. She writes, but these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. An unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with a rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. 
Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. The father speaks, Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever ignored the poor, so belittling my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest children, peddle killing drugs, and mock your parents. Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have taken down buildings with innocent lives. You have founded and established false religions. You have traded in slaves. You have relished each morsel and bragged about it all. I hate and I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, the icon theos, image of God, sinks, drowning into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored Rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. And Jesus cries out with the psalmist in Psalm 22, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot and who will not reach down or reply. Two eternal hearts are torn. Their intimate relationship and their intimate friendship shaken to the depths. The Trinity had planned this. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man, the Lamb of God, breathes his last and is slain. And at last, God the Father, the eternal Holy One, was satisfied. And upon those who have placed their hope upon his lamb, those who have sought refuge in the eternal lamb of God, 
Upon them, the righteous and just judge can now declare with no equivocation and no hesitation, you are justified. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in so doing, Christ, the Passover lamb, brought the meaning and the purpose of the Passover to its fulfillment. So we have seen first the culmination of the Passover. <clears throat> Next. Take a quick look at the commencement of the new covenant. The commencement of the new covenant, verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So first he takes the bread, right? And this is the unleavened bread, right, of the Passover. It's also called the bread of affliction to the Jews, the, the matzah bread, um, because it was made and it was eaten in haste before the exodus, right? Now, when the bread is eaten during the Passover the meal, the, the host would... He, he would break the bread, and while doing so, he recalls this Passover tradition by saying, This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in want come and celebrate the Passover with us. May it be God's will to redeem us from all evil from, and from all slavery. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in want come and celebrate the Passover with us. May it be God's will to redeem us from all evil and from all slavery. And Jesus now redefines the significance of the Passover bread to represent his own body and to represent the bitterness of the death that his body would endure the bitterness that he would be subjected to on our behalf. He even foreshadowed it in his own ministry. I am the bread of what? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. God, in his wisdom, he was intentional, even from the exodus, like the manna from heaven, right? The manna, the bread from heaven to sustain life for God's people so that they would not all perish. 
it was a picture that there would one day come another bread from heaven that would give everlasting life and save from perishing. So that's the bread. In verse 20, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. <laughs> so during the Passover meal, there are four cups of wine okay, that are served. And the third cup is the cup of blessing. So you, you recall he took a cup earlier to, to give thanks and to begin the meal. But then this third cup, the cup of blessing, it is taken after the meal, okay? So, yeah, the gospels say after supper he took the cup, right? The the um, I think in John it says so or Matthew or forget, but so after supper he takes this cup, this third cup that was served after supper, this cup of blessing. And during the Passover celebration, the Jews when they take this cup, when the with father or the head of household takes this cup, he would say. I will take the chalice or the cup of salvation. I will take up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's a psalm, right? That's Psalm 116, 116, 13, right? I will take the cup of salvation and I will Call upon the name of the Lord. I will take up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. So as Jesus serves the cup of blessing, this is my blood shed for you. This is my blood shed for you. Thus he reveals himself to be the fulfillment of Psalm 116, declaring that he is the ultimate consummation of the blessing of the cup of blessing, of the salvation of the cup of salvation to which the psalmist was pointing to. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is nuts. <laughs> this is crazy. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If the Bible had a hinge, okay, this verse would be that hinge. This is monumental. This moment this climactic moment is the moment that untold generations have longed for with eager expectation and anticipation. Here with this cup and his disciples in this upper room, he is accomplishing and fulfilling the old covenant before their very eyes. He is ratifying the new covenant. This is this is this is nuts. So we, so if you 
Here you go. Slow down. If you want to look at the old covenant, right? Tracing back all the way from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses, you have Adam, right? Be fruitful, you know, proliferate, multiply on the earth, have dominion over it. And then what does Adam do? Oh, that food looks good. You can make me like God, right? And even in the midst of man's failure, catapulting us into the fall, God provides a covering for them, right? I will cover your shame. I will cover you. One day, your seed, a seed from your loins will come and crush that serpent. The snake crusher will come. And then Noah, right? In Genesis 7, man's sin proliferating and violence proliferating across the earth. That wasn't the type of be fruitful and multiply God was talking about. But God provides deliverance in the ark. And he leads Noah and his family into the ark. And God, what? What does he do? After they go into the ark, what does God do? He shuts the door. It says God shuts them in. And they're enclosed, protected in the ark. God closed them up. They are safe in the ark. They were delivered in the ark. The ark was Christ. And Abraham, right? Bringing his son up onto Mount Moriah. And Isaac asked his father, Father, I see the wood for the sacrifice. I see the fire for the sacrifice. But where is the offering? Where is the sacrifice? My son, God will provide the sacrifice. On that mount, it will be provided by God. <clears throat> and then all the covenants, right? God's covenant to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed by your seed. will be blessed by your seed, a seed with a capital S. All the nations will be blessed. And then the Mosaic Covenant. You, Israel, shall live by Torah. You shall abide by my law. Okay? You will be unto me a kingdom of priests, says Yahweh. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests, and you will mediate you will represent me to the nations, and you will bring the nations to God. Right? 
And how did Israel fulfill that covenant? How did Israel respond? Right? On Mount Sinai, all that the Lord says we will do. Right? And then what's next? This golden calf. Right? Israel just layered on disobedience upon disobedience upon disobedience in that whole generation wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. A whole generation perishes. They would not trust Yahweh. They would not treat him as holy. And so the wilderness is strewn with their corpses. is the old covenant and on the plains of Moab okay so that whole generation dies off it's the next generation now they're on the plains of Moab across the Jordan they're looking and they see Jericho looming in the distance and this people Israel are about to cross into the promised land the land that God has assured them that God will give them the victory And again, Moses reiterates the Torah and their response. All that the Lord says, we will do. And by God's hand, they go in and they possess the land. But their disobedience comes through yet again falling into idolatry. And then you have the horrific time of the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And in that time of of the judges, if you read that book, and it is brutal. It is graphic and is is horrific. It said that the immorality of Israel surpassed even that of the Canaanites who dwelled in the land before them. So it was readily apparent. Israel's disobedience had no cure. And you had the series of human kings, right? King Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and it just goes down the list. This, this, this long list of human kings failing, all failing to live by Torah, failing to direct the hearts of the people to Yahweh, failing in one way or another, right? And Israel failed as the kingdom of priests to bring the nations to God. So it's clearly evident, Israel and all mankind at that They did not have the ability to abide by the law, abide by Torah. They could not live up to God's law. They could not cling to him and walk in his ways. Even after rededication, after rededication, right? David brings the ark to Jerusalem, rededication. Solomon builds the temple. 
the temple, it's accomplished. And then he leads the people, the nation in prayer. You know, may, may, may every man who looks to your temple and prays to your God, may, may you turn to him and, and hear. And then God sends fire from heaven to ignite the sacrifice on the altar at the temple dedication. All that the Lord says we will do. And then what happened to Solomon? And even even with Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? With that epic showdown with the prophets of Baal. If Baal be God, serve him. Yet if Yahweh be If he be God, then you serve him. Stop limping, Israel, between two opinions. And even after that, he still has to flee. Israel is still falling back into idolatry. And then Ezra. When he and the, the, the people return from their exile, from their discipline in Babylon... Persia. They, they return back to the land. They lay the foundation of the temple. They bring the book, and Ezra comes and reads from from the reads from the God's law from morning until midday. And the people all stood, and they wept with repentance. Still, after that, Israel falls into disobedience again and again into idolatry prone to sin prone to forsake God and then the glory the Shekinah of glory departs from Israel the old covenant had one lasting message man's idol factory of a heart was corrupt beyond saving. This heart cannot be improved. It cannot cannot be renovated. Man needed a new heart. And in that darkest time of Israel's history, God speaks through his weeping prophet. And Jeremiah calls out with a word of unimaginable hope for a day yet to come. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What a word of hope. And Ezekiel echoes in Ezekiel 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, says the Lord. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So on this night, as Jesus takes the cup, ratifies the new covenant. The sun of righteousness has dawned with healing in its wings. And the church is the present reality of the new covenant. Because we have tasted the salvation and the new heart regenerating power of God that Israel is yet to fully experience. I need to ask you, do you know how blessed you are to have been predestined to be born on this side of the cross? as recipients, beneficiaries of the new covenant and not a corpse in the wilderness. So when you come, when you take communion, when we come to the Lord's table, We come as recipients of the new covenant. And we come to observe this memorial of this new covenant that is ours in Christ. And we remember the cost that was borne by the Lamb of God to make this new covenant ours. just like Passover, which was a memorial looking back to the Exodus deliverance and which also looked forward to the cross. Communion is the memorial looking back to the cross and looking forward to our eternal union with Christ and to the everlasting supper an everlasting wedding feast to come at the table of the Lamb who was slain. So I want to leave you with just a few uh, application things to think about. So when you come, take communion. It's a reminder because it's so easily, with this life full of its distractions, full of the temptation, full of the sin, full of the grief, full of the sorrow, full of the heartache and the suffering, 
whether you're enslaved to sin or you are downtrodden and you are in deep sorrow, look to the cross. Look to the cross, the climactic and most significant event of all history. For this is where Christ has reconciled all things to himself, Colossians 1, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Reconciling all things to himself. This is the reclamation. This is the recovery, the restoration, which all creation longs for. And creation groans for it, having been subjected to fertility with the fall. Because all this brokenness in your life is not how it was meant to be. And as the Son of Man was nailed to that cross that Friday afternoon, he died triumphantly, thus beginning the reclamation of humanity, the reconciliation and the restoration of man to God, the new covenant ratified, inaugurated, and the birth of the new humanity, which is his church, his bride. That's why we come and observe, observe the Lord's Supper. And that's why we choose to take it together. It's a show of our solidarity because we know that life is hard. Right? This life is brief and full of trouble. So we come to remind ourselves, to remind one another as we take the bread and the cup together. We, the bride of Christ, are one in him. Him who is our head. Our bread and our cup. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. Where we will take it together with him anew in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God, you had in mind your son slain before the foundation of the world before Genesis 1 1 
you had the cross in view. You had your Passover lamb in view. And you had your people in view. God, forgive us if we have fallen into mundane routine as we come before your table. But refresh us, God, anew as we behold the cross, behold the meaning and the fulfillment of the Passover. And as we behold the glory of your Son given for us and the new covenant that we have in his blood that we can live to your glory that we don't have to give in to sin that we can put a smile on your face and we honor you with our lives God I thank you for your word I pray all this in your name. Amen.